Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, senior politics editor around here. I'm Marisa Lagos, part of the politics team. And today on The Breakdown, she may not be a household name yet, but Connie Leva is something of a dynamo at the state capitol, a champion for women. And for unions, organized labor. She comes out of the labor movement after all. And uh, we'll be talking with her about the clout unions have within the Democratic Party. And we want to hear all about finding love in a supermarket. I worked in a Dairy Queen once. Oh, really? Does I worked at... Remember <laughs> Athlete's Foot? Those awful shoe stores? That was my first job. Wow. Okay. We'll exchange stories some other time. <laughs> some other time. Uh, but we're going to start today with the story that has really captivated the news media all week long, and obviously uh, us as well. Uh, that is the Trump administration policy of separating children from parents accused of crossing the Mexican border into the U.S. illegally. And this is something, obviously, that's been all over the news and really, I think, captivated the country. Um, we want to get a more on-the-ground perspective, and we are lucky enough to be joined by John Spolvado, host of the California Report. Hey, John. Hey, John. Hi. I worked at a Wiener Stencil, by the way, for oh, my good. first job, I'm just glad. so you guys know. Before we get very serious. Before we get serious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's have some fun. So you were down it's in Texas. a tough Texas. transition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many jokes to be made here. Um, so you were down in Texas mm-hmm. um, for several days, and we're a lot of attention over how this policy is playing out. I guess to start, um, can you just tell us what it was like kind of personally being down there as a reporter? This is a tough story to watch, let alone to be covering. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the reason I'm joking about my first job is because I want to think about anything besides this at this point. Yeah. Um, It was very tough for me. I'm a father. I'm also a foster child, and I know what it's like to be separated from your family. And it was very difficult for me on a personal level to kind of keep it together. And in fact... You know, one of the things I observed when I was in Tornillo, Texas, this is a camp of about, at the time I was out, it was 100 people, 100, I shouldn't say people, they're, these are young boys. And um, there were clearly some, I went, you know, from the Mexican side, you could see there were some developmentally disabled. And that was very difficult. And actually, when I was coming back, I got, lay, there was a layover, blah, blah, blah. No one cares about my sad story. But when I was going through this airport in Denver, I saw this kid with Down syndrome and I just like lost it because, and it was it wasn't it was just like 
Well, there's been that comment have. about from Corey Lewis. You know what? This is a crazy also. thing, Scott. I hadn't even paid attention to that nonsense yet mm-hmm. because I hadn't, you know, like I was tweeting a lot, but I wasn't absorbing what was right. on Twitter because we were, I was reporting with a group. And so it was only afterwards. And then that was just rage. Um, it was more about the idea that these kids with who knows what health problems, who knows why they're trying to get up here. And I'm not excusing anyone doing illegal actions. I'm just saying on a personal level, um, these are people. And well, and that's why the story, I yeah. think, has has caught the attention of people really from all over the political spectrum. I'm a mom. I mean, you think you hug your kids and all you can think of is what if they were taken away from me, regardless of what I did or how that happened. In terms of like doing your job while you mm-hmm. were there, I mean, how hard was it to get good information? It's impossible. We can't get good information right now. Like right this minute, we don't know if the border patrol, like what's happening with prosecutions for these families who are crossing. So it this administration, uh, as has happened since the very get go, has been very, uh, let's say, reluctant to turn over anything where we can actually have an understanding of what's happening. I tried very, very hard to get accurate information, and we generally got a canned statement back. So it was very clear from a political standpoint that they didn't want information to go out. And there was a question of why, because, you know, if you can defend the the policy of separation, I'm not going to get into that for a second, but just what are things there? Do they have toilets? Do they have showers? Do they have the things they need? They won't answer those basic questions. And so, of course, people are running around, literally running around, wondering, like, is my family member, and we, we did meet some family members when we were out there, is my family member able to get water? I mean, you say a tent city in the desert, and if you're from San Francisco, where, where I live, uh, you think, like, everyone's got these cheap REI knockoffs, and they're just, like, dying in the desert. And that's not the case. So there's a, a legitimate question, political question, of why Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services didn't want people to know these very basic things, like, Yes, the kids are separated, but physically they're okay. Right. Well, so who were you talking to out there? Who was out there on the ground? I know there were huge protests while you were there. I'm sure there are a ton of people who are there to help these immigrants. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, were there Texans out there as well, just sort of who were also appalled at what was happening? So California, as we know, was kind of like the epicenter of the airport. Remember when the the travel ban targeting Islamic countries came out, um, or allegedly, I I don't even know what to say anymore at this point. (laughs) We know what you're talking about. Thank you. Um, Bail me out here, Marisa. Um, (laughs) The, the, I have never seen a rally like I saw in Texas, the energy that was there. And this was not coming from, you know, Beto O'Rourke, who's running for Senate against Ted Cruz and has an uphill. I don't you know, everyone talks about star power and the money. He has an uphill climb. There are there are Republicans there who will vote for two dead dogs before they vote for a Democrat. And he he turned that into a political rally. So there's the politics part of that. But there were people who were at that rally, Vietnam veterans. I saw I met a woman with stage four cancer. Mm -hmm who said, and he literally told me, this may be one of the last things I do, but hmm. this is what I'm, it had never protested before. And the reason I bring it to California is we have all this energy, but I have never seen a cross section of people who were so aghast at what was happening. Well, in there. Texas, obviously a very deep red state, as mm-hmm. you just alluded to, compared to California. What, what, did, what, in terms of the, you mentioned the energy, but in terms of the actual politics of the yeah. people who were protesting or members of Congress who were there, what did you hear and how would you contrast it with what you would hear, say, if you were down at the Mexican border by San Diego? Sure. So um, I think, it's, well, first of all, it's bipartisan. The the Republicans there, because Republican congressional members, Will Hurd was one of the leaders on that. And he's a very conservative uh, Republican from, from San Antonio. Um, the state rep 
that I spoke to, Mary Gonzalez, who's one of the first people to actually see what the inside conditions were like, she was actually mad at California. And I, let me explain why. California has many safe democratic districts, and they are counting on California to essentially be the not only like the compass for the party, but also that firewall. Like, And so she started hearing that some Californians, including she alleges, and I haven't confirmed this, but she alleged at the highest rank, so we know who the highest... Uh, congressional California Democrat is <clears throat> Nancy Pelosi. So, like, <laughs> my point is, is that she was she was hearing that they were willing to trade these tents for walls. And I said, are, you're saying that they will are willing to say we will let you build a wall if you get rid of tents. And she said this. Exactly. Oh, you don't like the tents? Oh, we need more money for facilities, and I want the money for the wall. And I and I think this is all part of their strategy. It's a long-term game, and 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 it also distracts from what the kids really need, right? We need to be fighting to make sure these kids get legal services. Like that's what we need to be fighting for. So that was a Republican. No, that was a Democrat. Okay. But she's I, telling Democrats here right. to stand firm. She's, she's telling Democrats, like, for example, Jackie Spear came on the forum, mm-hmm. the, the congresswoman from, from San Francisco, the San Francisco area, San Mateo. I have part of that. When she remember. said on our air she yeah, said, this she week said, that, hey, we can always take the wall down. That's what, yeah. And she's saying no, because to her, the communities still haven't had that separation that we've seen in California. Um, where a wall has has forever divided a community, people still. I mean, this is crazy. You go to Tijuana and you come back up. You need your passport. You go down there and you just bring a driver's license. Like the border patrol, they know everyone, so they're just like, "Come on!" So they still have that kind of the way it was when I was growing up in San Diego right. around in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. John, thanks so much for your reporting this week. Are you going to go back down? Uh, next yeah. Week? So we are going to. Uh, there, KQED has assembled essentially like a special group. They're going to be reporting, and the California Report is going to be bringing those stories. Um, you know, and we want to get to the bottom of a lot of this. We don't know what's, yeah. what's going on. It's well, very. Frustrating. Thank you for going down there and keep it up. We want to hear more about what's happening on the ground. Get it's some so rest important. before you go back down, though. All right, you All keep right. it up too, Marisa. Thanks, dude. <laughs> All right, John Sepulveda. After a short break, we're going to be joined by Connie Leva. She is the state senator from San Bernardino County, and she'll be joining us. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 
And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I am Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And joining us now is Connie Leva, state senator from the 20th Senate District, and that is mostly in the Inland Empire. She's from the city of Chino in San Bernardino County, to be precise. Connie Leva, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We want to talk to you about all kinds of things. Okay. But just, you know, you were listening to what we were talking about a moment ago uh, about what was happening at the border. What are your thoughts about how California Democrats should, uh, you know, react to all this? Well, we are a progressive state. And if you're a Democrat, you should be a progressive and we should be doing whatever we can. This is but it's not a Democrat and it's not a Republican issue. It's a humanitarian issue. And I don't know where we got away from being a humane country. So this is there's a lot to be done. And uh, it's really terrifying. You're from Chino. Yes. Uh, which many Californians, I would venture to guess, have not been to. <laughs> that is probably correct. What's, make, the, make the case for visiting Chino. So Chino, we have cows and we have prisons. Uh, that did not do it. <laughs> I don't think. What else you got? <laughs> I have lived in Chino since 1970. Uh, when my dad got out of the service, we moved uh, there. Uh, he bought, they bought the house my parents still live in on the GI Bill for a dollar. A dollar down, I should say. They didn't pay a dollar for their home. And, you know, Chino is that city that was very small has now expanded. We had tons of dairies, about 300 when I was a little girl. Now we have about 30. Uh, we do have the Chino Men's Prison, the Chino Women's Prison. But Chino is just a great little piece of Americana. Um, you feel like you're a little bit in the country, but you still have, we have good shopping too. So we, Yeah, not far from Ontario. Right? Not far, right? A hop, skip, and a jump. Not far from Rialto. My, either, not right? far from Rialto. No. <laughs> my 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 husband is from uh, Apple Valley, so oh, we've right we've the done hill. the Chino, yeah, the the drive. So I know that. Um, when I first met you, I was sort of surprised at what a progressive you are, given that that is sort of the area where California starts to turn purple. I know your district is still pretty blue, um, but you come from a very like union labor family. You came out of the labor movement. Yes. Tell us about your parents and like how it sounds like your path to politics maybe started around the kitchen table. Yeah, absolutely. We always talked about politics when I was a little girl. Um, we always talked about voting. My parents always voted. We at the kitchen table. But we did talk about who was running for, you know, less about uh, statewide and, uh, and, and city uh, elections, more, you know, what was happening in the country, why it was so important to vote. So Nick Nixon was president, right, when you, yes. when you moved there? Yes, it, it's true. I didn't, and you know, I was too young to really understand what happened. And I do remember my parents talking about it. It makes more sense now than it did when I was young. And I just always knew that voting and being a part of your government was something that you had to do. It was... It's our right, but it's also our duty. You uh, are strongly backed by organized labor, yes. and you come from organized labor, and uh, your parents also were yes. sort of involved in their unions. Is that how your path to? Yes. Yeah, so t tell us about that. So my dad was a member of Retail Clerks, which evolved into the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, UFCW, which I was a member of. Um, he, he did that for about 10 years, and then he was also a Teamster because he's a mechanic, so he was um, part of the Teamster Union. But my mom had the longest stint, 35 years with the California School CSEA, California School Employees Association. And when I was uh, 18, I got my first good union job at an Alpha Beta grocery store. Did your dad help you? He did not. He was, <laughs> he was long out of the industry by then. Uh, I actually um, went in and applied on my own and, and got the job as a box person. And, and I loved it. I remember the first week thinking, wow, I'm running around getting carts. I'm making more than minimum wage. This is a great job. I love this. And, and something else happened there. I alluded to that 
earlier. You met your yes, husband. Yes, I found my favorite husband there. <laughs> what aisle? What aisle was it? He was a checker, and I was oh, he a worked there. box person. Yes, I thought he, he was a customer there. for some reason. No, he worked there, <laughs> oh. and it was funny. As soon as we start dating, they separate you. They will not let you work in the same workplace, which is probably a good yeah. idea. So I got sent out to Covina, and uh, he stayed there at that store. But uh, we got married about a year later, and we've been together ever since. Wow, you were young when Very you got married. Very young. I was 21. He was 23. Never thought I'd be married at 21. So you... Um, evolved into the labor movement you and ultimately became the first woman president of the California Labor Federation right yes so I was actually in college while my husband and I uh, married and my degrees in communicative disorders I was going to be a speech therapist because I thought it was really important to teach people how to communicate effectively is that helpful in Sacramento it, uh, uh, the labor movement is what's been helpful <laughs> me, me coming from the labor movement negotiating skills have been very helpful in Sacramento but I ultimately got laid off when I graduated from college, uh, got laid off, found out we we're having twins. And um, after I had them, stayed home for two years and then went to work for the union that I had been a member of. Did that temporary for about six months and then became one of the first women union reps at my local and really decided that was the career I wanted to follow because I could help people speak and find their voice in a different way. Hmm, interesting. Well, when we were reading some of your past interviews, especially during that time when you were leading, when you were in the labor movement, I mean, one thing you talked about um, is this idea of is labor sort of keeping up with the times? Um, and you said one of the, you know, the biggest sort of challenges for labor is labor leaders who don't want to change and adapt. What are you talking about there? Like, what what do you think is the biggest problem? Well, I think that we all get comfortable. Uh, and I think that times have changed. And the way we organize and the way we talk to workers needs to change. And I think some folks in the union that I worked in, the UFCW, um, were kind of stuck in the 50s and 60s and in the way we did things then. Well, our world has changed leaps and bounds, and the workplace has changed leaps and bounds. And I just think we didn't always... We need to do a better job of talking to the workers and saying, what is it that you want your union to do for you? It shouldn't just come top down, me telling you as a labor leader what we should and, do And, of course, you. there aren't many women in the in labor, organized labor, especially at the top. Correct. Um, how hard was that? What kind of issues did that create for you it or was, for them? Well, <laughs> probably more for them than for me. It, it was very interesting. Um, when I was the president of my local union, I was one of nine that represented a local in um, California, and I was the only woman, so I was the only woman uh, at the table. And I was always really grateful for that position because I was really grateful that I could bring a woman's voice, a working mom's voice to the table. None of them had bad intentions. They just didn't know. They weren't the ones that took their kids to school every day. They didn't take their kids to the doctor. So I felt like I got to be that voice for the working moms that we represented. And then being the president of the California Labor Federation uh, will always be one of the highlights of my life. Very progressive organization, uh, still led by Art Pulaski, who is very progressive and uh, and just does a really great job of trying to get unions to get to that next level. Well, do you think that there's an argument that maybe in some industries, at least, unions aren't as necessary as they were, say, 50 years ago. I mean, thinking about more white-collar jobs, because I think that, and, and I should say full disclosure, I've been a union member at every shop I've worked at, and I think that there are challenges when you feel like maybe, as a member, in some cases, that the people who are the least effective are being protected by a union, for example. So, like, what's the case you make for keeping them relevant? I think that every workplace benefits from a union, and I think that is, regardless of what job 
job you do, the protections you have. When you negotiate a contract, management knows what their role is. The worker knows what their role is. It makes it much easier for everyone. And as far as unions protecting the weaker workers, candidly, what I found is management protects the weaker worker because they know exactly what they need to do if that worker isn't doing their job to get rid of them. But they choose not to, and the union takes the blame. I just want to say we're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio, and uh, our guest is Connie Leva. She's a state senator who represents the San Bernardino County and a little bit of L.A. County LA. as well. Um, you know, talking about unions, one union that does not have a shortage of female leadership is the CNA, the nurses. And uh, they have been flexing their muscles up in Sacramento, especially, not exclusively, but especially around single payer, and which has become a real dividing point between the Bernie side of the, of the uh, party and the Hillary people. Like, do, do you think that, are they playing a constructive role, would you say? Or do they go too far sometimes? You know, I think that CNA has the best of intentions. And I think that we all try to carry things out in a different way. There may be some things that I would have done a little differently. I know that they are completely passionate and believe 100% in universal health care. I believe in universal health care. I believe in or in, and accessible health care. We have to make sure that people not only have um, affordable health care, but they have to have access to that health care. So I think, I think CNA did a very good job of waking everybody up and saying, hey, this is the next big thing. They also, however, when the bill got put on hold in the assembly, they threatened Anthony Rendon. Yes, that they is true. They threatened him with a recall I, uh, or, and, and with a challenge. Yeah, I don't, you know, everyone has their own tactics. I do know that I lost a bill over in the assembly because CNA was one of the co-sponsors and the uh, mm-hmm. the speaker was not happy with them. So I was a uh, byproduct of that, which it is what it is. Well, I guess all's fair in love and war. But um you know, everyone has their own tactics. Sometimes might not be my tactic, but that is the road they chose. Well, I, since we're on the Speaker Rendon thing, he actually coined a term a couple of years ago <laughs> when you decided to support a, a woman who was challenging a more moderate Democrat um, in your neck of the woods. Yes. In the um, Assembly, right? Is, yes. Yeah, yeah, Assemblywoman uh, Cheryl Brown was yep. being uh, challenged by Eloise Reyes. and. Yes. And Brown had the backing of the speaker, and and he said at a roast that that they're going to call it getting levered when something happens. I mean, it sounds like you might have... fixed that relationship a little bit. Yes, we've definitely fixed that relationship. We have mended fences. You know, he was doing what he needed to do to protect his member. Um, You said earlier, Marissa, that I might be a little more progressive than one would think from this area, which is absolutely true. When I ran for office, I was told I couldn't win because I was too progressive for the area. Um, I am more interested in working with progressive Democrats, and Eloise Gomez-Reyes is progressive. Cheryl Brown was not, and I was happy to support Eloise, and i do it all over again. So I guess guess my question, though, Mm -hmm. there is, like, does sometimes the Democratic Party in Sacramento um, acquiesce to more moderate Democrats for, you know, for the purposes of filling seats with Democrats rather than, you know, pick the harder fights? Like, is that because party loyalty is a big thing in the legislature? It is, and I found that out (laughs) probably the hard way. Uh, 
you know, yes, I do think so. I think that sometimes people take the easy way. Um, I would rather take the hard way and do the right thing. Um, if if we're always going to pick that person, and I've heard it a lot, well, you know, we could end up with a Republican. But you know what? If you don't have a true north, if you don't know who you are and what you stand for, it doesn't matter because you're going to struggle in your district. Um, I've had to explain things in my district. I'm always happy to talk to people about why I voted the way I did, why I'm passionate on this issue or that issue. If you just talk to your constituents, I have a real belief that you can be elected even if you're more progressive than what you think your district is. I'm talk to people. I'm, excuse me. I'm wondering if you, uh, obviously a lot of your constituents are not Democrats. Yes. Uh, and some of your colleagues in Sacramento also. Do you, you know, saying, oh, I'd rather work with a progressive Democrat than a moderate, like, what's your relationship like with Republicans? You know, I actually work well with everyone. When I was first elected, I tried to, uh, I made an effort to have breakfast, lunch, coffee, dinner with all of my colleagues, uh, Republican or Democrat, because at some point we're going to work together on something. There are people that you prefer to work with, but we all work together. And what I always try to remember is we were all elected. So just because your views are different than mine, the people, the if you're in the Senate, the almost million people that you represent elected you to represent them. But I also, it's, it's hard. We're in trying times um, right now in this country. And so sometimes it's hard to think that we can work together. But at the end of the day, we have more in common than we don't have in common. And I think if people just focused on that, we could get a lot more done at all levels of government. I want to pivot to an issue that really sort of overtook the Capitol in the last year, which is the Me Too movement in Sacramento. It was a group of women lobbyists and consultants and politicians who stood up and said, we've, we've had enough, essentially. Um, and, you know, you have been out there pushing legislation on some of these issues, including one this year that would ban non-disclosure agreements. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with that. I mean, I know that's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because in some ways, NDAs can protect victims as well as perpetrators of sexual assault and harassment. That is correct. So the intent of the bill is to make sure that the harasser, the perpetrator, cannot stay silent or stay a secret. The victim, in this case, will always have the opportunity to remain, keep their name um, disclosed. They don't have to put their name forward. They can keep that anonymous. But we want to make sure that the perpetrator cannot keep his, mostly his or her name, um, undisclosed. Think about Harvey Weinstein. If that first woman hadn't had to sign a non-disclosure agreement, maybe the 79 other women wouldn't have had a similar situation. So I think this um, it, it could be really beneficial going forward, and it would it would apply to both um, public and private. So. On that note, there is a proposal that came out in the last week to really try to get uh, the legislature's arms around this issue and create a set of practices and protocols. And I know some of the criticism of what and there's a lot of support for what's happening, but ultimately it would still leave kind of final decisions about discipline of members and staffers in the hands of lawmakers who are politicians. I mean, is that it? Are, is the legislature seeking to hold the rest of the world to a different standard than itself? I don't think so. I think that before everything came out and this all happened, I think that could have been true. And I think in years past that could have been true. But I don't think so. And I sit on that bipartisan, bicameral um, committee. And just today we ratified a set of uh, rules, if you will, or recommendations. And you know what it boils down to is these are HR, human resource issues, Every company has an HR department that is paid for and managed by that company. So the legislature is no different. The HR department will handle it. We'll have a panel um, 
nonpartisan panel that will will hear cases. Uh, it started off a little rocky, and I wasn't sure how we were going to distill all this information. But I'm really proud of the committee and the work that everyone did. And I think we really have something to be proud of and change the culture at the Capitol. It's going to take a little while. When this first broke, I think it was October of last year, it seemed like the Assembly and Speaker Rendon kind of got their act together a little quicker than uh, your house did uh, under Kevin DeLeon, who was president pro tem at the time. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how looking back, uh, you know, how, how would you critique that? And I've also noticed that I don't think you've endorsed him for the Senate, U.S. Senate against Feinstein. And are correct. those things related at all? Those things are not related. I've uh, known Diane Feinstein for a long time, I would say first and foremost. And secondly, I would say, you know, women don't do a good job of sticking together. And one of the things I've promoted since being in Sta- Sacramento, men are really good at sticking together. Women are not. And I think we should do a better job of having each other's backs. I have no reason to not like Diane Feinstein and no reason not to support her. I think she's done a tremendous job. Have you endorsed her, though? I have endorsed yeah. her. I endorsed her early on. Um, As far as our house um, not getting our act together quite as quickly, um, it was a mess initially with everybody. And that's why I think I'm so surprised that we've done such a good job and come out with a product that I think is really helpful. But I think it's because everyone took it seriously. Um, When you're not the leader of the house, you have to kind of find your way and where you can find make give input. And I think everyone who's on the committee did that. And uh, like I said, I think we did a good job. I mean, we should say it is kind of extraordinary. People may not know that outside of Sacramento, but for the two houses to agree on anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely correct. I want to ask you, you, uh, for the entire time you've been in Sacramento, uh, Jerry Brown has been governor, and he's got a few more months, and then he's going to leave. And you're going to have a new governor, maybe Gavin Newsom, perhaps. He seems to be doing well in the polls. But, you know, what are your thoughts about that transition to a new governor? Well, you know, Scott, it is funny that you say that. About six months ago, it dawned on me— we're going to have a new governor. <laughs> I have done very well. My team has done very well with this governor. We've sent him 22 bills in the three years I've been in the Senate, and he signed all of them into law. Oh, wow. Yes. We've, we're very proud of our About track record. thousand there. Yes. So I, it will be different. Um, I do have a relationship with um, Gavin Newsom. I've known him for a while um, from back when I was in the uh, labor movement. I endorsed him early on. I really like his stance on child care and early childhood education. I think those are some things that we've been lacking in California. And he's also a great environmentalist, which is critically important in my district. Do you think that, uh, you know, maybe it's time for the legislature to be a little less deferential to the governor? I've always thought that. <laughs> I've always thought that. All right. That. I think we will have to leave it there. But thank you so much, thank Senator, you so much for, for coming, coming in. in. Thank we you look for having me. forward to seeing uh, what that means next year, if uh, whoever's in the governor's office. And, and you're up for re-election I am as well. this so, year. Yeah. Yes. All right, good. Well, Connie Labor, thank you so much thank for you coming down much to for be on me. The Breakdown. And that concludes this edition of Political Breakdown. It is a production of KQED Public Radio. You can check it us out anytime at Apple Podcasts, where you can also review, rate, subscribe, talk about how much you love us. Thumbs hopefully. up. All, all those things. Stuff. Our producer is Guy Marzarotti and our engineer today, as always, Seal Muller. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor with some help this week from Monica Lamb. And Holly Kernan is our vice president of news. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And you should. And I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And you better. And you better. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown. We will see everybody next time. Bye-bye.
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.